Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you're an ASHP member, you will also have an opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information. My name is Jessica Nesham. I am an emergency medicine clinical pharmacy specialist at Mercy One Des Moines Medical Center in Des Moines, Iowa, and I'll be your host for today's episode. With me are Norman Hillsbury, a clinical pharmacist at HCA Florida Ocala Hospital in Ocala, Florida, and Maria Foy, an advanced clinical pharmacy specialist in pain management and palliative care at Jefferson Abington Health in Abington, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today, Norman and Maria. Let's get started by talking about today's topic, treatment of acute pain. To get us going, what should be included in the initial assessment of a patient presenting with acute pain? Well, everyone experiences pain at some point in their lives. It's an unpleasant feeling that is highly subjective in nature. The International Association for the Study of Pain defined pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms of such damage. Recognition that pain has a protective purpose is important and treatment of the underlying injury or illness is necessary. Our focus today will be on the pain itself. It's the most common chief complaint that drives patients to providers of healthcare. We're going to want to determine in the initial assessment both the characteristics of the pain and its intensity. For characteristics, pain might be described as burning, as pins and needles, shooting, stabbing, aching, throbbing, soreness, tenderness, or in other ways. There are tools that are helpful here, including the McGill Pain Questionnaire and the Brief Pain Inventory. For intensity, we have tools such as numeric rating scales, visual analog scales, and the Wong-Baker Faces Scale. It's also important to consider other factors, such as the patient's cultural background, other disease states, and age as all of these have an impact on how the patient displays pain and how intent he or she might be to mitigate the discomfort. It's helpful to look for other signs of pain than those reported or described by the patient. These might include restlessness, moaning, grimacing, guarding behavior, and autonomic responses, such as pupil dilation, perspiration, changes in pulse, respiratory rate, and blood pressure. In addition to characteristics and intensity, it's also helpful to determine the location of the pain, the provoking factors, and timing. Ask the patient such questions as where does it hurt, what makes your pain better, what worsens your discomfort, is the pain constant or does it occur only at certain times, and other similar questions will further help us to treat our patient. This initial assessment should also include patient goals. Understanding what's important to the patient will guide us in choosing interventions. Some patients, for example, will indicate that functioning is more important than pain relief. They might tell you things like, I don't want to feel drowsy. I don't want to be unable to think clearly. I only want to be able to sleep through the night. Some patients may be satisfied when pain is longer intense. Others may desire complete relief. All of this information will guide us. Okay, so if we have a patient that's presenting and we identify that they are having acute pain, 
what would you what would you say are some appropriate initial interventions to be made? Well, having gathered all the information we've just discussed, now we want to probe a little further. Does our patient have any drug allergies? What current medications are being taken? What has already been tried? What has worked? What hasn't worked? Non-pharmacologic pain management modalities include complementary and alternative treatments, restorative therapies, cognitive behavioral interventions. Complementary and alternative treatments include uh, chiropractic, acupuncture, yoga, Tai Chi Chuan, spirituality, Feldenkrais. All of these have evidence of efficacy and are available. They have low risk and they might be financially feasible. Restorative therapies include exercise, weight loss, TENS, traction, bracing, massage, and heat and cold applications. All of these have evidence of efficacy. Some of these are widely available and inexpensive, and some of these are also beneficial for comorbidities. Cognitive behavioral interventions include distraction by means of reading, video games, television, and other options. Mindfulness-based stress reduction, such as directed meditation, music therapy and deep breathing, repatterning unhelpful thinking, guided imagery, Reiki, hypnosis, and even emotional counseling. All of these have evidence of efficacy and are options often chosen. Pharmacologic interventions fall into two broad categories. They include interventional procedures and medications. Interventional procedures include choices such as interstitial medications administered by implantable pumps, nerve blocks, steroid injections. Medications include acetaminophen, NSAIDs, anticonvulsants, antidepressants, musculoskeletal agents, anti-anxiety medications, and opioids. Anticonvulsants, antidepressants, musculoskeletal agents, and anti-anxiety agents are sometimes categorized as co-analgesic drugs. The choice of the intervention or interventions will be specific for each patient, but there is broad guidance available. It's preferable to provide an analgesic modality before the onset of pain or before it becomes severe. The World Health Organization published guidelines on usage of analgesics in a three-step ladder approach, aligning the proper analgesic with the intensity of the pain. This model would, for example, give one choice for pain of one to three, another choice for pain of four to six, and a third choice for pain of seven to 10. A different combination of the items we've already mentioned could be chosen for each of these levels uh, on the ladder. Acute pain is best managed using a multimodal approach. This combines medications and techniques to permit the lowest effective dose of each drug to be administered. This results in the reduction of adverse drug effects. Patients will vary in their pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, so each treatment plan will have to be individualized and then tailored as the treatment continues. So then how do these interventions change if the patient's pain persists? Well, the pain management plan will change over time. There, there are many factors that will influence this, including a change in the patient's condition, outcomes and goals, patient adherence to the treatment plan, and recommendations from specialists that may be consulted, the potential resolution of symptoms, and then the financial factors. 
It's important to have the patient maintain a pain journal. This can be reviewed by providers to gain an understanding of the timing and the severity of pain and also of adherence factors. Are adverse drug reactions being reported? Is the patient taking the medications as ordered? Are they skipping doses? Are they doubling doses? What do pharmacy records demonstrate? What information is available from the prescription drug monitoring program? Does the patient indicate goals are being reached? Have other providers been consulted? Has the acute pain resolved? Is the patient able to continue to afford what's been ordered? The opioids, if they're part of the treatment plan, are they being used only for moderate to severe pain? Are those opioids being limited to short-term use to prevent misuse and opioid use disorder? Does the patient live in an environment where diversion might occur? Uh, what happens if opioids are used for acute pain beyond one week and the patient becomes tolerant? This might require higher doses and will certainly predispose the patient to opioid use disorder. The CDC guidance for using opioids for acute pain includes the following five elements. When prescribing opioids for acute pain, begin with open and honest communication. Discuss the best way to manage pain and the risks and benefits of opioid therapy. Use the lowest effective dose of immediate release opioids. Describe only the quantity that will serve the expected duration of pain. And if opioids are to be used, they should be combined with non-pharmacological therapies and non-opioid uh, therapies as appropriate. So when does acute pain become chronic pain and why is that important to understand? Oh, that's a good question. Acute pain typically lasts a short time, but can last up to three months or sometimes six. It usually has an abrupt start and is associated with uh, an identifiable event. Chronic pain is persistent or intermittent pain that lasts for uh, more than three months or beyond the time of normal tissue healing. Acute pain disappears when the underlying cause of the pain has been treated or has healed. But chronic pain continues beyond the time of normal tissue healing. This requires the associated constellation of symptoms to be addressed. This includes both physical effects and emotional effects. So the physical effects of chronic pain might include um, uh, limited mobility, uh, tender muscles, lack of energy, changes in appetite. The emotional effects of chronic pain might include depression, anxiety, anger, fear of re-injury. It's important to realize that no two patients will experience pain the same way. So we have to make sure that our pain management plan is individualized and tailored for the specific patient. So then what are some of the similarities or differences then in treating acute pain in patients with either chronic pain or opioid use disorder? So with both of these patient populations, we see similar changes within the central nervous system um, in patients that have both chronic pain and opioid use disorder. Our pain systems become sensitized. So what that means is that these pain systems are changing because of 
um, the tolerance and the comorbidities, the psychological comorbidities that we see in many of our chronic pain and opioid use disorder patients. What happens in the pain system that we're seeing now on functional MRIs is we see increased pain signaling to the brain. We see a lower threshold for initiation of this signal. So something that would cause me and you very little pain can set off severe pain in someone in a sensitized pain system. And so we also see a decreased pain tolerance. These people feel more pain um, at easier than we would. So patients with both chronic pain and opioid use disorder often have these increases in excitatory neurotransmitters. So we see more and more excitatory neurotransmitters setting off the pain signals. But we also see less amount of substances that modulate the pain compared to the general population. So things that can actually bring down our pain, serotonin, norepinephrine, um, our national endogenous opioids are lessened in both of these patient populations. So patients with both opioid use disorder and chronic pain, when they experience acute pain, a multimodal um, approach is needed, which Norm had pretty much, Dr. Pillsbury had gone over a multimodal approach, not just using one aspect for treatment of pain. And I think these patients can be... Um, different. They're similar in these respects, but they're also different because in someone with chronic pain, despite the sensitized pain system, those patients are actually feeling pain. It's not pain that's usually relieved very well by opioid therapy, but they do feel pain versus someone with opioid use disorder. I was feeling more cravings and more um, wanting to um, get, uh, have their mental status changes, I guess I should say, by using opioid therapy versus actually treatment of pain. So then what are some of the challenges in treating acute pain in patients with opioid use disorder? Yes, these patients are very challenging. Both chronic pain and opioid use disorder are very challenging, especially if they come in with acute pain. So treatment of pain in these patients is very complex. These patients are highly tolerant with opioid use disorder. And if they have severe pain, we really have to evaluate a benefit and risk of opioid therapy in these patients. So think of my patient population. I work in palliative care, and we're seeing more and more patients coming in with opioid use disorder that now have metastatic cancer. So how do I treat these patients? These patients can have a lot of challenges. Some of these patients that have been clean may not be wanting to use opioids, but if their pain is so severe, they will experience a very poor quality of life without opioid therapy and their quality of life can be compromised. And providers can be reluctant also to prescribe opioid therapy to someone who has a history or has current opioid use disorder. And they'll try to provide lower doses because they think that they shouldn't give them as much opioid. But the problem here being is they're so tolerant that they need higher doses of opioid due to this tolerance. And so this pain can be severe and if it remains untreated, the worry is that patients may try to obtain pain medications illegally to treat their pain. Um, this can lead to compulsion to obtain opioids, can increase stress of family members who are often caretakers for these patients. And, you know, it can lead them to go to the streets. I have a story here of a, a man who came in here with opioid use disorder who had wounds from his injections. And he was actually on methadone maintenance at the time, but we wouldn't give him very much here for his pain. We wouldn't even give him a good dose of an NSAID. So he left, he relapsed, he went to the streets and he went to fentanyl. So when he came in the next time, months later, he got back on his methadone. He still um, is very 
motivated, but he had severe pain from these wounds. So I pretty much got him on opioids safely, used a PCA, patient control analgesia. And when it was able to get him off them, we carefully titrated these down and um, got him into a Suboxone clinic because methadone, he had a QTC prolongation. So I had to get him back onto Suboxone. But we were able to treat his acute pain while trying to minimize his risks. And the thing is, when we didn't treat his acute pain, he ended up going to the streets and treated it himself. And that's what we really have to worry about in these patients, that if we don't do adequate treatment, that they will relapse and go out to the streets and maybe possibly... um, succumb from their opioid use disorder. So what's the best strategy for treatment of pain in intolerant patients? So we, uh, for acute pain, we really try to utilize multimodal analgesia. So as Dr. Pillsbury said, a lot of the things that are out there um, can be used. We have a lot of adjuncts that are used more for chronic pain, but say for my surgical pain patients that come in, what we'll do is we'll do multimodal analgesia. We'll use acetaminophen scheduled around the clock. If there's no contraindications, we'll do non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents around the clock and then utilize opioid therapy or any additional pain control. Um, if I knew that the surgical procedure will be will produce severe pain, I'll use a patient control analgesia. And it's interesting because physicians will think that uh, patients will use more opioid um, that have opioid use disorder if they're on a PCA. But to be honest with you, patients with opioid use disorder that are seeking or looking for opioid therapy don't like PCAs because you have to use much lower doses And you separate that time period for them to get a second dose versus giving a whopping dose IV push that puts them in that euphoria range. So in those patients, um, we try to use PCA. And in patients that are already on opioid opioid, uh, therapy, I guess I should say medication-assisted therapy or medications for opioid use disorder, um, we'll talk about in a little bit about how we manage those patients. But for that acute pain, say surgical pain, we will use acetaminophen around the clock, NSAIDs around the clock. We will um, try to utilize ketamine and lidocaine intraoperatively to try to decrease the sensitivity that we may see post-op. And we will um, you know, allow a PCA to try to have that patient control their opioid analgesia without giving them that euphoria that you would see with IV push doses. So can we use any of the medications typically used in opioid use disorder for the treatment of pain? So, yes. Yeah. So in my patients, as I said, we're seeing more and more of those patients come in with opioid use disorder on medications for opioid use disorder. So buprenorphine, methadone, naltrexone, for example. So buprenorphine, for example, is usually dosed once a day. However, with the fentanyl on the streets, we're seeing more and more of multi-dose therapy for buprenorphine. So with buprenorphine, if patients are on 8, 16 milligrams a day, you can A, push the dose up to 24 milligrams, sometimes 32 milligrams. There is an analgesic ceiling with buprenorphine, um, but really some patients may be able to get additional analgesia with 24 to 32 milligrams. If the patients are on that dosing once a day, one of the strategies would be to divide the dosing out. So say they're on 16 milligrams once a day for their opioid use disorder, and we know that they're going to have pain from a surgery, say, for example. We could take that buprenorphine dose and divide it out four times a day because we'll get analgesia for a few hours, but not for the full 24 hours with buprenorphine. So by dividing that dose up, 
um, you may be able to give better analgesia without stopping the buprenorphine. In the past, we always used to stop buprenorphine if we knew there were surgical procedures, but guidelines have come out now that state that we should continue it, possibly divide the dose, right? So if it's not maybe, and if it's not a surgical procedure, you may actually be able to use additional buprenorphine as needed for severe pain. Again, using that multimodal therapy, dividing out the buprenorphine dose. If it's a surgical procedure, using a patient-controlled analgesia on top of the buprenorphine, but the thing to remember with that is you're going to need to use an opioid that has a high affinity for the receptor. Buprenorphine has a very high affinity for the mu receptor, so it's very difficult for other opioids to knock it off that receptor. So by using a patient-controlled analgesia of, say, possibly hydromorphone or fentanyl, those opioids have higher affinity to the mu receptors than say something like morphine, you may actually be able to utilize those and get um, beneficial analgesia from that PCA, utilizing a drug that has a better affinity to for that mu receptor. So when we use methadone, it's also similar, right? Once a day, we give whopping doses of methadone once a day for opioid use disorder to stop those cravings. Again, 80 to 120 milligrams a day. Someone comes in, they're on 120 milligrams of methadone once a day. We take that dose, maybe we divide it out 40 milligrams three times a day to provide that analgesia on top of it. And keep in mind that you're going to need higher doses of as needed medications if someone is on methadone or buprenorphine. So methadone to morphine equivalent is approximately one to three. So if someone's on that 120 milligrams of methadone, we have to know that that's equal to approximately 360 milligrams of oral morphine equivalents and utilize a breakthrough pain medication based on that total daily dose of 360 milligrams in order to provide analgesia for those patients. What about naltrexone? You mentioned that that was another medication used for opioid use, use disorder. How do you treat pain in those patients? Oh, that's a difficult one. So naltrexone is a reversal agent for um, similar to naloxone. And using naltrexone is one of the agents that is recommended for opioid use disorder with buprenorphine and methadone. However, with naltrexone, you get zero analgesia from that um, higher dose that we use for preventing of opioid use disorder. So with naltrexone, and you need to treat acute pain, you would have to try to stop the naltrexone prior to treating that acute pain. So if you know you have a surgery scheduled, naltrexone is usually either given once a day or once a month injection. So if the patient's on that once a month injection, you may want to schedule the surgery at the end of that month. If they're on it um, daily, you have to usually wait at least 24 to 72 hours stopping that before you can use an opioid for pain management. So in someone that does have acute pain and you're not able to stop that naltrexone, you may, may need opioid doses that are six to 20 times those usual, a usual opioid dose that would be required in order to overcome the reversal properties of the naltrexone. So non-pharmacologic therapy is, non-pharmacologic opioid therapy is recommended, again, multimodal with utilizing NSAIDs and acetaminophen around the clock. Maybe ketamine may need to be used um, in these patients to provide additional acute pain control um, and trying to not use an opioid because you're going to need such high doses on naltrexone. So that would, is a much more difficult 
agent to treat acute pain on, but possibly using um, non-opioid therapy and um, ketamine could be possible medications that we can use in these patients. Okay. Thank you so much. Maria, Norm, any final pearls or words of wisdom, I guess, for our listeners before we sign off today? I'm sure we will all benefit from uh, what we heard from Maria and the experience that she has had with these difficult to manage patients. And I think that another podcast for another day would be on microdosing with buprenorphine and someone who has, you know, opioid use disorder and is willing to be on buprenorphine. But sometimes with fentanyl, we can't get them under control with buprenorphine because of the fentanyl being in their system so long that using a microdose or low dose buprenorphine um, initiation versus a traditional initiation can be a way to get people onto buprenorphine for acute and chronic pain and um, try to get these patients a little bit more appropriate versus um, just using medications from the streets or, you know, um, high dose of opioids in someone with use disorder. So thank you for the question. And that's, like I said, another podcast for another day. (laughs) I think there's lots of opportunities here. Okay. Well, I want to thank our guests, both Norman and Maria for a great topic and discussion. For our ASHP members, you can earn free continuing education by visiting elearning.ashp.org backslash podcast. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resource centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as the ASHP section on Clinical Specialists and Scientists Connect Community, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Therapeutic Thursdays, and join us here every Thursday where we'll be talking with ASHP member content experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP.